Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets, where a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Part de, or take two. So you may have noticed we didn't have an episode last week, folks. Uh, we, we tried to record one. We recorded most of one. We at least half of one. Well, we didn't record. We 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 <laughs> we said half of one. We didn't record anything. That was the problem. I hit record. The software did not record. See, the problem is with all of the other shows that I do, they're all remote and we do them using a service called StreamYard, which creates a backup recording. So even if something goes wrong on my end, there is a recording. However, because we're in the same place. Because we're in the same place, I don't. We don't use an online service, duh. So uh, I only use the the uh, audio hijack software on my computer, and I do it hundreds of times. The the press record, it you know it works. It just didn't work, and so now we're gonna we're recording both hardware and software. The roadcaster, you know, guys don't care about this, but we're recording no. anyway. I I would be completely glazed over if I was listening. I know. To this. I'm sorry. It's just, it was so dispiriting. <laughs> I it this happens to other people too. I've I've heard other podcasters and they like they're like, we recorded a great show. I wish you heard it. <laughs> it's gone forever. I'm not sure it was a great show, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> Let's talk about some listener feedback again. Steve P via YouTube, who's been very patient, waiting two weeks for us to read his uh, feedback. The last episode, we in uh, episode one ninety, we talked about our family food budget or food food bill. That's not so much a budget as a bill, and how much we spend on food. In house, according to the USDA estimates, our I thought we were spending a lot more than most people, and it turned out turned out we were spending about what they expected for a family of our size. So. Uh, Steve writes in, hey, Dom and Melanie, I enjoyed the discussion of your family spending on food. My wife and I have only two kids, and I believe they're younger than yours. Uh, if they're younger than 11, then yes. 10. T- 10. Sorry. <sighs> so hard to keep track. <laughs> and we spend about $250 per month. Steve, is that per month or per week? Because if you're spending $250 a month, kudos to you. That is not a lot of money to spend a month, even for four People, two adults and two littles. That might be in range. I don't know. It depends. Anyway, we don't buy any fancy groceries, but we do eat a lot of whole foods, i.e. not the store, <laughs> fresh fruit, vegetables and meats. And that kind of food is pricey. One way that we found to save a bit on groceries is to shop at discount grocers, Aldi, Price Right, etc. for some of our fruits and veggies. And the produce department said those stores tend to be decent, in my opinion. Of course, we don't always end up having the time to shop around a second store and usually end up spending more by buying everything at a single grocery store for convenience. So thanks for sharing your real grocery budget, at least based on our experience. Your spending's in line with what we would expect for a family that mostly consumes wholesome and not processed foods see i'm thinking it must be per week because if if it's in line with what he does then yeah that would not be like 
and when he says, you know, he's you're, we're buying the food that tends to be more expensive, which is the the whole foods as opposed to the processed foods. Right. Although we, we over the as time has passed, we've been buying more and more packaged foods. Um, yeah. Some of it has to do with just convenient food for that that the kids will eat um, for lunch. It's mostly lunch foods, right? I mean, right. Frozen beef patties and frozen one particular child in particular. (laughs) We won't name names. Well, that and our kids eat a healthy amount of ramen. Let's put it that too. That this this uh, ramen and mac and cheese are uh, staples in this house. But you know what house aren't they? I guess Uh, we've got an Aldi's nearby. I've never been to it. I've never been to Aldi's. We should have like a family field trip to Aldi's sometime. <laughs> we should. So we have a local grocery chain. I th- probably mentioned it. It's been so long. I don't remember. But it was Stop and Shop. And it is not a discount grocer. Uh, it is a full service, full price grocer. And um, and we're probably paying a premium for that. Maybe. Yeah. Well, so every week I get the circular. Every week I go through it and I use the sales in there to help me figure out what to cook next week. And I always uh, clip coupons and the, the guy at the self-checkout has adopted us. Uh, the, the attendant at the self-checkout has adopted us and is always handing me free coupons. There's always like eight or $9 worth of coupons that he gives me every week. That's really awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> he must be like, see, I never got that when I did all the shopping. So I'm thinking people see you and they're like, oh, it's a dad shopping. <laughs> I was thinking maybe he had a crush on me, which, you know, I'm willing to go with it. <laughs> no, um, that's probably what it is. It's probably pity, actually. It's more yeah. than anything. This this poor guy's got a giant cart full of food. Last week when I went, I ended up spending five hundred over $500 for one shopping trip. I I bought like $13 of watermelon which I shouldn't have and a couple of things like that that really pushed us over and there were there were a couple of things that we were getting like like uh refilling certain staples like all um cooking oil and rice and when you well, yeah when you're buying the big packages of staples then yeah, yeah. The, 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 the which will last but but it pushed us over the 500 mark and so it at $500, they have to have a manager come and approve the sale. And I'm like, oh, for the love of Pete, please, can I just buy my groceries and go? This is painful enough as it is. So, um, yeah, I would still love to hear what other people's experiences, though. Like, what are you, you know, if you if you are OK with sharing and we can do this anonymously, you know, how much do you spend on your family? What size is your family and ages? Are they teenagers or whatnot? You know, if, if you can just give us some ballpark in numbers and you know but what do you spend a week on your grocery bill because it would it i think it helps all of us when when we can kind of you know know where do i stand on this as far as shopping multiple places i just like the most i've ever thought like we i go to the butcher i've mentioned that i thought maybe i could do a costco thing like a costco membership although we are a little afraid of me at costco in but stocking up mm-hmm. on bulk stuff. Yep. We don't have room for bulk for a lot of bulk stuff. I mean, we barely have room for the stuff we have now. Uh, so, yeah. All right. But thank you, Steve, for yes, the feedback. You. All right. Let's talk about what's been going on. Uh, two weeks ago, we were going to we talk about this last time is we went. So. Back up. Let me tell you the whole story. 2023 is the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi's being released in theaters in 1983. 
And I was like, oh, that's cool. I don't I haven't done anything. Like we've been kind of going through the 40th anniversary years over the last five or six years. And I haven't, you know, thought, oh, let's do something special for A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back. But Isabella came to me and said, you know, can we go to see Return of the Jedi in the theater? Because she, you know, for her, this is a big deal. Like she's a big Star Wars fan. She, you know, has she's seen the new movies in the theater, but she hasn't seen the classics. So I'm like, okay, why not? Why not? Why not? Well, I'll tell you why not. Because <laughs> it's, it's expensive. expensive. It's okay. Uh, it's a, it was a special occasion. And so we got tickets to our local theater. It was very nice, very cool. It was only in theaters for about two weeks, maybe at most, until May 4th. May the 4th be with you. And so we had like one weekend, the last weekend, that it was possible for us to go. So we went Sunday afternoon. And some of the kids dressed up in costume. Ben and, and uh, Lucy, Lucy and Bella. And Bella yes. And, and got compliments from people in the parking lot as we were leaving. Oh, yes. Um, Bella was Princess Leia. Ben was Darth Vader. Lucy was Sabine Wren from Rebels. And uh, Sophie was embarrassed. <laughs> she, she did wear a Star Wars sweatshirt, though. She always has her Star Wars sweatshirt. I mean, she, she called it secondhand embarrassment. And it's a, yeah, it's a thing. It's a teenager thing. So um, it was fun. It was fun that they got to see this movie in the theaters. I remember in 1983 coming out of the theaters as a, what, 14, 15 year old thinking, wow, I mean, that's it. There's no more Star Wars. Like there was nothing after this. There was no like, sure, there was rumors that that there was a plan for, you know, a uh two more trilogies, but nothing solid. And of course we wouldn't see anything for 15 years from that point. That's wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd be 30 years old before the, the next one came out. And so, um, yeah, it was, I was kind of sad that, that day. So to look, to, to come out, I mean, you know, first to see the, the film was kind of awesome, but then to, you know, to, to come out of the, the movie theater, knowing there's more coming. There's a Soka series this summer. There's, you know, all that stuff. But uh, what do you think the ki- how the kids reacted? Uh, they seem to have a great time. Yeah. Uh, I They don't get to go to the movies in general. No. They've seen only Star Wars movies in the movie theater. That's true. It's too, hard, too expensive. But I think they enjoyed themselves. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I enjoyed myself. I, I confess that I did kind of closed my eyes for some very, very long blinks a few times. <laughs> Anthony said I was snoring during the Ewok village scene. <laughs> the Ewok village scene is kind of long and slow. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen I the actually, movie like a hundred times. I, mean, I, I, I actually got kind of heavy at Lidded when Luke is talking to the Emperor, which is a scene that should have a lot of tension, but I don't know. I heard this funny story of Ian McDermott, who played the Emperor, Saying that the big cherries in oh I saw that yes was is not motorized it's all like manual and it it doesn't swing correctly so he, in order for it to swing like like ponderously slowly he had to kind of scooch his feet like under the robes to turn you know uh, welcome young Skywalker scooch 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 <laughs> just it's picture. funny it's funny to picture yes um, yeah I mean it's a and it was the special edition, by the way. So it yeah. had the addition of the nonsense that Lucas added years later, including 
Darth Vader's no when Luke was being killed by the the uh, the Emperor and the additional music and CJ characters in Jabba's palace for the song. And the additional celebrations after the victory at the end. Yes. Yes. The, the victories, which were, they were completely unrealistic. Oh, yay. The emperor's dead. They all running around in Coruscant at the capital as if the entire bureaucracy of the empire is like, yeah, that <laughs> we're not done yet. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's not like the allies marching into Berlin. <laughs> It, it's it was it's not the same thing, uh, but it's OK. I mean, so so they added these scenes, um, but kids loved it. I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, Yeah. We didn't smuggle in. No, do, oh, we did smuggle in some candy, though. I, I did. Yes, I had some M&Ms. Right. I did buy some popcorn, though, just, you know, because that's the thing. All right. So they got mad at me for eating most of it before the movie even started. The popcorn. Yeah. You always eat all the popcorn before the movie starts. That's like, but the, like the movie starts and then you know you're like, oh, it's empty. That's always I've always eaten all the popcorn before I, the movie starts. I did not used to do this. Yeah, you taught me bad habits. Yes. Um. So let's uh, move on and talk about some food we've been uh, eating. So last week, because of the 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 movie then there was a cub scout thing there wasn't a lot of time for cooking so i made uh, this soup that i made a long time ago i don't think i've made it very recently um but it is it's a yucatan style it's called yucatan style chicken lime and orzo soup so it's a mexican soup and it's it's really quite simple actually uh in its basic form um it's you, you you have orzo, and orzo is a little rice-shaped pasta. I don't know if any, if a lot of people are familiar with it. I mean, some people probably are. But it's a rice-shaped pasta called orzo. You cook some of that, and then set it aside. Then you cook onion, garlic, and jalapenos that are sliced um, with on- yeah, onion until it begins to brown. The onion You want, really want that onion to, to really caramelize, if you can. You really get it well cooked and um then you add in some chicken some uh, boneless skinless chicken breast that you, it says cut into matchstick style size strips which is really Match- small stick. that doesn't even make sense to me you don't matchstick chicken well it's hard to matchstick chicken i was trying and it was i mean you, it, it, it's easier if it's still slightly frozen but the idea is to get it small so it cooks really fast that's the idea um, then you add chicken broth, lime juice, and diced tomato, either canned or fresh, and you just simmer it until the chicken is cooked through. Add in the orzo, add in some cilantro, season it with salt and pepper. You're done. Uh, so it's, I you know, it can be a very quick meal. Now, this one I added sliced carrots, some bell pepper that I matchsticked, uh, frozen corn, and kale that I tore up. To just give it something, a little more body, a little more vegetables for for, for that matter. Um, I liked it. It wasn't a big hit all across the board. Yeah, I kind of, I don't know. It was, it was okay. Did it have enough lime juice? Probably, maybe not. I don't know. They never have enough lime or <laughs> lemon juice for these things. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was pretty good. And for, for a quick soup... It has like a very that limey summery t- taste, 
but on a cold, rainy spring day, I kind of like that that burst of that citrus acidity uh, in a soup. So that was pretty good. Today, this Sunday, I made another uh, dish. Uh, this was easy barbecue beef sandwiches. This was a recipe I got from a YouTube channel, Cooking with Rye. R-Y is his name, Rye. Okay. And who's a screenwriter and a, a novelist? I didn't know that until recently. He shared, you know, but like he did a Q&A and people were like, you know, are you the Rye who who's the screenwriter? He's like, yeah, that's me. I'm like, oh, that's funny. Um, anyway, it's super easy. So it's a slow cooker recipe. You, you take... Um, some beef broth, Worcestershire sauce, some brown mustard, garlic powder. He had uh, garlic, granulated garlic, but I just garlic powder. Pe- uh, smoked paprika, some chili powder, some salt and pepper. I also added a little bit of um, liquid smoke to give it that barbecue uh, smell and flavor. Uh, and then you mix that in the, the slow cooker, and then you just drop a four-pound chuck roast in there in just just throw it in and you kind of I kind of rolled it in just to kind of give it the juices all over it. Cook on low for seven hours. And then you're supposed to check for tenderness. And if it's if it's still needs more time, you flip it, cook for another one hour, up to three hours if you need to. Then you take the roast out of the liquid and shred it. And then you uh, take all the liquid out. Uh, reserve a half a cup. You put the shredded meat back in the slow cooker along with a quarter to half a cup of the liquid. You got to just eyeball it. You don't want it to be too wet. I, I think I put too much liquid in uh, when I put it back in. And then you also add five to six ounces of barbecue sauce of your choice. And then mix it together and let it cook only on warm, just on warm for another 45 minutes. And then it's ready to serve on rolls. So it was really uh, simple. In fact, when I did it, it was done in seven hours. Like that at the seven hour mark, it was done. And then I just kept it warm, uh, you know, until dinner time uh, in the in the cooker. I wonder how it would do as a instant pot, like just change the cook time and put it in an instant pot instead. Hmm. Well, so the one of the reasons for the the slow low and slow is to get that fat to render. So you'd want the fat to be rendered. A, a chuck roast is a is a fatty piece of meat. Right. It's just I think that. It it had again a little bit of the mushy, long cooked texture, texture, and I'm wondering if the texture would be a little bit more firm in an instant pot than in the. Well, one of the things it could have done is, is so if I use less liquid in that last phase, and if I'd put it under the broiler a little bit to kind of drive off some of the moisture and crisp up some of the edges. Yeah, but the the texture, the, the mushiness would still have been mushy, like. I suppose, I mean, some of the mushiness is the fat that's been rendered into it. So I suppose if you did it in the Instant Pot or did it on high in the slow cooker, if you don't render all the fat, then you won't have as much of the collagen in there to give it that mushy texture. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you you know, this is sort of a substitute for doing it on the smoker and doing it low and slow over the smoker where you'll get a, it's a drier environment, so you're going to get a much uh, different texture. Right. So. Uh, but the flavor, I thought, was pretty good. And uh, I, I I wouldn't mind trying again. And we could, we could, 
uh, fiddle with some of the way, you know, some of the, the things we did with it. And um, yeah, I liked the flavor. Just the, the again, that yeah, you fiddle with the texture. I'm, I'm not a fan of the slow cooker. Uh, I mean, next time they have a. Um, next time they have a chuck roast on sale, I'm just thinking maybe we can uh, try the instant pot and see how that goes. See if we can find an instant pot recipe or something for something similar. And then the other thing we did, which was not, which was a drink and not a, um, a, a food a meal was uh, a friend of ours. Who, who was it that shared it originally? Was it, um, it was Lauren. Oh, Lauren. Yes. Um, who, is she in California still? She, I think she moved back to the East Coast. Uh, Lauren, I think in Virginia, she shared this uh, TikTok on Facebook, which like it was screenshots of a TikTok of all the different parts of this drink recipe, and it's Brazilian limonada. And very simply, which it has to be for TikTok, I suppose, is you take uh, four limes scrubbed and washed, and just throw them whole into a blender. Then you add a third of a cup of sugar. Seven ounces of sweetened condensed milk, which is half of one of those little cans. Four cups of cold water, four cups of ice. Blend until smooth and then strain and serve over ice. So you strain it through a strainer and serve over ice. Um, And you could add like some rum if you want, which I did and it was good. Uh, So this is not a locale. (laughs) This is a once in a while treat because of all the, there's a lot of sugar in this. But uh, what did you think? I liked it. I think that having the whole limes adds a bit more bitterness than I, than I prefer. Cause it's blending up the pith in there. Right. Cause you're getting the pith. So, and I wanted a bit more of the sweetened condensed milk flavor. Cause I love the flavor of a sweetened condensed milk and I couldn't, I couldn't really taste it. I could tell it tastes some sweetness. I didn't have as much of that as I was hoping for. There's a lot of fibrous stuff that's getting strained out of it too. Um, and I think a lot of the, the sugar and the milk and whatever is getting left behind with that when you're straining it. So I think if you if you zested the limes and juice them really good and left the peel out, so you, then you don't have all of the the bitterness of the peel. Uh, so it's just the zest and the uh, and the juice and pulp like pulp, like lime pulp i think is fine like i don't like oh, yeah. having lemon pulp and things but lime pulp i think is just flavor you don't like lemon pulp and things uh it can, it can be more fibrousy than than the the lime pulp like i like when i juice a lime on that that i don't know the it's the juice that sits on top of a bowl thing yeah. i i will to i will take the lime stuff that's there and just dump it in like in the salsa or whatever but for lemon lemon i don't it's too thick oh i do it's too pulpy i think um same thing with like orange like or like orange pulp that's why when you clean it it's it's with the orange or the lime lemon it it's all stuck there and you gotta really work it out i totally use the lemon the orange <laughs> and lime and lemon pulp i know so <laughs> I know. And uh, so, um, but if you did that, you would also not be leaving behind so much of the, the uh, uh, sweet and condensed milk. It might, it might be too sweet. You might have to adjust the sugar ratio. I bet you could, you could dial back the sugar on that to instead of a third of a cup, maybe a quarter cup. I bet it would be perfectly fine. And if it's not, if it's not sweet enough, you can just add some simple syrup in, yeah, in your cup. 
Yeah, I'll do. I mean, it was very refreshing. I tell you, I mean, I, I really, I love a tart uh, drink in on a hot day. It's it was it was nice and refreshing. Uh, I don't think my my doctor would want me to have one every no. day, but <laughs> no, she would not like that. So, so that's what we've been eating. I'll put links to uh, some of the recipes. I don't have the limonada one in the uh, a link to it. It was just a Facebook uh, share of some screenshots from TikTok. You probably. Google and find you one. Can Google it, and yes, you you probably find it. Uh, I'm sure it's a big TikTok trend. So let's talk about what we've been reading or watching. Um, let me talk about a movie I watched on Apple TV called Ghosted. This is a romantic action comedy starring uh, Chris Evans, Captain America, and Anna de Armas, um, who's been in a bunch of things, and. Um, I liked it. There was a ton of um, cameos in it. There was, um, oh, I mentioned it before. So who was uh, um, Anthony Mackie, who plays Falcon in uh, the Avengers movies. So Chris Evans and Anthony Mackie. Also Sebastian Stan, who was the Winter Soldier. Also Ryan Reynolds. And so basically it was like an Avengers movie. Well, sort of, yeah. But there was like all of their pals were in it, uh, you know, as in cameos and various small roles. Uh, and um, yeah, it was fun. Uh, so, you know, Chris Evans is a very handsome man. Anna de Armas is cute as a button. You know, the the there's fun chemistry. The, so in the story, he is um, uh, a historian. That's his by profession and education historian who went home to help his dad on the family farm, which is sort of a it's a farmer's market farm and never left and sort of is stuck there on the farm and um, never goes anywhere and that sort of thing. Whereas she well, at first we think she's an international art curator, which is a really dumb cover story for a spy, but she's a super spy. We find this out fairly early in all of the trailers and all that stuff. We'll tell you, you know, why, she's is a spy. A, why is it a dumb cover story for a spy? International art curator. What is that? Like, uh, you have, I'm on the road two months, uh, two months at a time acquiring things. And like, uh, yeah, anyway, anyone who knew, would know anything about art would go, why are you on the road for two months at a time in all of these strange countries that we that America has problems with? <laughs> what kind of art are you getting? Uh, anyway, it's 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 fine. So. The premise is he they meet at the farmer's market. They clash, but there's a strange attraction. Uh, they spend the most amazing day together. Um, and he's kind of obsessive about losing things. So he has all these tile trackers on everything. And at one point, his inhaler, because he has asthma, ends up in her bag and with and it's got a tile on it, which is funny. There weren't air tags. This is Apple TV, right? But they they didn't want them to use they didn't want them to use air tags. I think because of the stocking aspect aspect of it. So what happens is he finds out she has the air tag the 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 thing with his tile on it. it it's like a generic thing. It's not actually a tile and the tracker. And he sees she's in London, and his mom in, encourages him to make a romantic gesture and fly to London and surprise her, which is a total stalker move. Um. Yeah, I can hear our teenage daughter saying, stalkers are creepy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And um, and then he ends up getting all caught up in, you know, uh, international spy hijinks. 
Uh, and so you have a lot of the the comedy, the they bicker, but of course, you know, they're getting together and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And there's, um, you know, high speed car chases and action sequences. High speed car chases. You know, pl- airplane fights in airplanes and falling out of airplanes and that sort of stuff. Yes, it's all that sort of things happen uh, that you expect from the, all the cliches from a spy movie. Uh, nevertheless, it was kind of fun. It was cute. It was be a good date movie. Um, you know, you get some action spy things for the guys. You got romantic comedy for the girls. I'm sorry. I'm stereotyping. I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, although they did. I have to say in this one, they did flip the stereotype, which is usually this would have been like, she's the stay at home girl who doesn't want any adventure. He's the international man of mystery. Will they get together? And so they kind of just flip the flip the script, flip the script. Yeah. So that was pretty good. It's on Apple TV Plus. So if you have Apple TV Plus, check it out. I got to say, Apple's been getting a lot more good things. I mean, when they first started, it was just like hardly anything. But there is a lot to watch there now. And I I really have been enjoying it. Um, You know, Ted Lasso season three has been better than last the last year. And some some other series that I've been watching there have been really good, which is to say that there's a new series on Apple TV Plus that I've just watched the first two episodes for called Silo. Right up front, they tell you, you know, we don't know who built the silo. We don't know why they built the silo. We don't know why the world outside is poison. We don't know when we'll ever be able to leave. So what, what is the silo? So, so the silo is, an uh, I know, but this I'm just saying like this is what they say up front. The silo is an underground city that's uh, like this vertical city so it's just basically spir- it's a spiral staircase in the middle of all of these levels hundreds of levels i think it's at 140 levels and everything they need in this city is in there there's you know cattle levels and farm levels and you know okay all that stuff but no elevators for some reason <laughs> what for some reason there were no elevators <laughs> they have they everyone has to walk the stairs i, I don't understand this and the set design's interesting because it it's clearly decaying. They 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 have history up to 140 years ago, but they don't have any, they don't know anything prior to that. All of their history prior to 140 years ago was erased by some rebels. Okay, so they don't know anything. What they do know is that there is a camera up top on the surface that looks out onto the surface that shows this bleak, desolate landscape. And if there are certain things, certain transgressions that send people out to do the cleaning, which is to say, to go clean the lens, the, cl- the lens of the camera that looks outside to tell them whether to, to, tell, to just show them how bad the world is outside. OK, it's, it's a death sentence. Like, even though they're suited up, they the people who are sent to clean die within minutes. So some sort of radiation or poison or something? Something. It's unclear. Um, okay. But there's also an indica- some sort of indication that maybe it's all a lie. Maybe the world up top is fine. Maybe somebody's intentionally keeping them down there. And there's some elements of this is a closed society, so everything is extremely um, 
authoritarian in a sense where like for example you have to have you can't just date and marry you have to have a sanctioned relationship has to be approved by the government if you want to have a child you're given you know you have to apply and make an application and then you can you have a year to get pregnant and only so many kids can be born a year and all this stuff relics things from the before time are are illegal and so, and it's all very decayed. Like things are, you could like the way the set's designed, you can see like where pieces of the walls are falling. And so it's very old and it's kind of decaying. And um, it's interesting. They, 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 they kind of keep doing this flash forward flashback thing with different characters. So the first couple episodes are t- different characters who are experiencing things. And then, the character is getting is seeing something, but we're not seeing it, and then we go back. Okay. So there's a there's so there's a mystery, and they're just kind of leading us gently along they're, in the mystery. They're toying with us. Yes. I don't know. So far, so two episodes. You know, I'm not going to guarantee that there isn't something inappropriate <laughs> coming in episode three or or something. You know that so you know watch with your own at your own risk, but. Two episodes in, I'm intrigued. Uh, it's an interesting world that they built. It doesn't feel like some of these post-apocalyptic YA stories, you know, based on YA novels. This is based on a novel, but I don't think it's based on a YA novel. These are all adults. They're not like kids and the chosen one child and all that sort of stuff, uh, like Divergent and Hunger Games and <laughs> all that stuff. Um so it feels a, li- a bit more grown up and uh, interesting. The, the actors, I'm like, there's some really good actors. Will Patton, David Oluwo. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I've seen him in some other things. Um, oh, what's her name from The Office? Rashid. Her last name is Rashid. Uh, anyway, um, some good. Some there's some good actors in this one. So. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep watching it, see how it goes. Okay. You had a couple things you watched. I did. I watched, um, this was actually like. A long time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> ancient history. So I will try to dredge the, the, I recorded all sorts of wonderful things about it. Or said You said things, things in the last recording us, or yeah. non-recording. In the non-recording. Yes. Anyway, I watched two movies that were both set in Ireland. Um, I watched uh, the uh, the Wonder, mm-hmm. and it wasn't Foster. Foster the was the story, the Quiet Girl, which was based on the story Foster, which I read not too long ago. Uh, so, the Quiet Girl was really just an absolutely lovely movie. I adored it. It's very low key, but it's not boring. It's about a girl whose parents are, um, well, her dad's a drunk and a gambler and a near-do-well adulterer. I mean, he's he's bad news. And her mom is basically trying to run the family farm single-handed while her dad uh, gambles away the, the cows and they don't have enough money to pay the guys to get the hay in and stuff. It's set in nineteen eighty. It's set in nineteen eighty one. Yeah, it's set in eighty eighty one. So it's it's modern, but it's not contemporary. Yes. Um, everyone speaks Irish in the movie, 
pretty for the most part, except the dad. There's a few there's a few conversations in English here and there, but most of it's in Irish. So it's subtitled. So it's subtitled. Um, I loved that because I studied Irish in grad school. So having a chance to practice my Irish is always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's like this. The like the title says, she's very quiet. She's being sent to stay with her mom's cousin and her husband. Who are an older couple. They're a slightly older couple um, and they're childless. And they're very, the, the wife is incredibly kind to her from the get go. The husband is kind of standoffish, not mean, just standoffish at first. And then he over time warms to her really, really beautifully. And it's just, it's the story about this relationship and these, these childless couple who takes in this girl and they fall in love with her. She falls in love with them. And then at the end, eventually she has to go back home. Her mom's has the baby. She was sent away because her mom was about to have the baby and they just were kind of overwhelmed and she has to go back home, but she's clearly bonded with these foster parents in a beautiful way. I mean, it's just, a, it's a kind of a story about love and about healing. Like she's, you don't get the sense that she's being violently or horribly abused, but she's kind of being neglected and she's not really loved. Her older siblings make fun of her. She wets the bed and they're cruel to her about it. And her parents are just kind of indifferent to her. And so it's just sort of a story about a child who needs love finding love. I love this quote from the movie. Many's the person missed the opportunity to say nothing and lost much because of it. Yeah, that's the the foster dad. I love I love how he just really accepts her quietness. Like, you don't have to talk. It's okay. Being quiet is good. Cuz he's presumably a a quiet person. He's kind too. of a quiet guy. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of the stoic quiet farmer. <laughs> Takes care of the cows. Right. Um, is a dairy farmer, I think. I just, I really loved it. It's a beautiful story. I, I loved the short story it was based on. I loved the movie. Highly recommend. Okay. Um, then there was The Wonder, which was a much more... Um, dark? Kind of dark, but I also just, I felt like there was some major missteps in it. I wanted to like it. It's a period piece. It's set in like the 1860s, I want to say, like sometime within like 20 years of the famine, but not during the famine. Um, it's based, it's also based on a book uh, by the Irish novelist Emma Donahoe. Donahue. Donahue. Um, and it's got a pretty good cast. It's got Florence Pugh as the. Um, She's the, the protagonist. Protagonist. Who, can I say? But Florence Pugh is like a chameleon. <laughs> she is completely different in every role she does. It's amazing. So Florence Pugh is an English woman. She's a nurse who served in the Crimea with Florence Nightingale. So she's a trained nurse. Yep. And she's come to Ireland. She's been hired by this village because there is a 14-year-old girl. Wait, 14 or 11? A teenage girl. A teenage girl. Yeah. Who has just made her first communion and has not eaten since her first communion purportedly. And it's been four months. So the question is, is it a miracle or is something 
or is, is somebody is deception going on. And Florence Pugh has been hired simply to observe. She's not supposed to interfere or treat the girl in any way. She's supposed to allow her to to eat food if she asks for it, but she's not supposed to try to like force feed her. And she, you know, she says up front, you know, if if this was in the hospital, we would be force feeding her. Okay. Um, she's so she is definitely it it is very much a classic. She's the woman of science and skepticism and then the village of devout Catholic Irish people who are seeing this treating this as a miracle. I felt like it was not as stereotypical black and white. I, uh, religious people are superstitious. Religious people are superstitious and skeptical people are um, enlightened. But there were certainly some notes of that. And the the end, the resolution, I felt like really kind of hit that note. There were some nice moments where the mom of the girl um you know, says to Florence Pugh's character, you don't understand us. You're, you shouldn't judge us. And when she makes some disparaging remark about superstitious religion, the mom looks at the notebook where she's taking all of her scientific notes and says, yeah, there was more than one kind of religious faith going on here, mm. suggesting that her faith in science was also a kind of religion and a creed, a belief system. I think there are several things that were were completely wrong notes in this movie that really threw me off. One, it begins and ends on a sound stage, as if to kind of shove your face into the idea that this is all a story and it's being framed. I really thought they could have got rid of that. Like literally the soundstage of the movie? Yes. Like you start on a soundstage with a character who is the sort of narrator talking to you. And then you like zoom in on the part of the stage, which is being the ship, which Florence Pugh is on going sailing to Ireland. And then it in the end, it pulls back away again to a soundstage. And I sometimes I, I mean, I suppose that device could work. It just felt really overly theatrical and it didn't. I didn't think it served a purpose. Mm. It was annoying. And then Florence Pugh's character is a widow. Uh, she says, we find out later that she's lost a child and that her husband actually isn't dead. He just left her right after their kid, di- their baby died within a few days of birth. She is also taking opium in order to deal with the her grief and loss the way the opium she has this like ritual where she like lights a candle and pricks her finger and then takes the opium and then stares at the baby's boots and then goes off into these theatrical kind of sexy swoon i don't know it kind of seems to try to be trying to glamorize her opium use in a way i don't didn't like it and then she ends up hooking up with a newspaper reporter who's originally from the village who's come to report on the miracle and wants to milk her as his inside source. The dramatic graphic scene between them was completely over the top, unnecessary and felt really out of place for its time. It felt anachronistic and modern and just what the heck is this doing in this movie? And apparently turned it into an R rated movie. Yes. That's the only thing that's R rated about it. Right, pretty much. That's weird. If you if you took that out, it would be like 
a perfectly fine movie to share with your family. Um, Maybe that's why it was included. I don't know. I just, it it turns out that it's not a miracle. It's a fraud. And (laughs) spoilers, right? I don't know. I, I feel like this movie doesn't really deserve to to okay. not, not be spoiled. Um, and well, it did. I think delve into a theological explanation for why the, the, that made sense with the characters. Like, like the deception made sense from the characters' point of view, from the point of view of their faith. It was sort of both a bad faith and a good faith attempt to to it was meant it was meant to be an atonement rather than a deception for attention or for notoriety and i i kind of liked that it was a little bit more complicated than i expected where like you know the the girls faking the miracle in order to get attention mm-hmm. at the same time I don't, there were so many ways that it, it brings up the issue of abuse and cover up of abuse. And this is an important, it is an important. Not clergy abuse though. Not clergy abuse, but, but the cover up of sexual abuse, which I think, I mean, in some ways, clergy abuse is just an extension of incestuous abuse. I mean, it's. No, I know. Right. But. Um, Yeah. And the ways in which it's it's being covered up. And I think that is important to talk about and it's important to think about. And I think that there's a way in which Florence Pugh's character is an outsider coming into this close-knit community who have sort of circled their wagons to protect the secret is believable. I think that it is sadly true that religious people, even people who have a deep faith, when caught with this particular sin in their community often go into denial and go into cover up. And it was believable on that level that Florence Pugh would have an insight and an objectivity, which allowed her to uncover that at the same time, some of the ways in which the plot worked out felt very kind of mechanical and Mm. predictable. And it really kind of kept wanting to hit this faith versus religion as opposed to being, I think I would have been more satisfying if she had been a person of faith who was uncovering the abuse, but not undermining the faith aspect of it. Right. I think that would have been a much more nuanced and interesting story. I think that <clears throat> having a person of faith grapple with the abuse and the apparent miracle and the character's need for atonement. I think that that could have been a really interesting dive. Instead, mo- the most religious characters are the flattest and the ones who are most invested in covering up and perpetuating the deceit. Mm. There's only one religious character, very religious character who comes off kind of good, which is the other observer who's the nun, who is very reticent to say anything even though she kind of suspects that it's a fraud. Yeah. But at the very end, when Florence Pugh kidnaps the girl in order to get her out of the situation, the nun sort of implies that she understands that Florence Pugh has kidnapped her and that she's okay with that. 
You said, I think at some point you told me that the the nun has almost no lines. She, she, she's very, very, yeah, she's, you know, maybe a dozen lines in the movie. She's mm. very quiet. I felt like they could have done a lot more with her character. It would have been interesting to see her having some internal struggles, to have some dialogue, to get more of her point of view. I felt like by leaving her as this kind of cipher, it's almost like, well, Catholics don't have anything to say about speaking up against abuse or standing up against abuse. We're all going to circle the wagons and only the brave non-Catholics are going to criticize it. And I think while sometimes regrettably that does appear to be true it's right. not it's not universally, universally true, true. and it would have been nice plenty of us who speak up right it would have been nice for the movie to um acknowledge that to acknowledge yeah. that on the other hand at the same time i understand that irish catholics are very wounded and scandalized by a lot of the abuses that happened in that country that were covered up not only by the church but also by the government for a long time and so I can understand that sort of given the context of the movie, why it doesn't quite play fair, if you know what I mean. Mm. It wasn't the movie I would wanted, but it, it felt like it was trying to look at it fairly. It just was angry enough that it wasn't able to be as objective as it wanted to be, maybe. Mm. If that makes sense. Yep. An interesting fact, by the way, the mother and daughter in the in the story were real life mother and daughter the actress and actresses interesting were mother and daughter i, I liked the girl's character i the the actress who played her was really good uh really believable and uh the mom too was it was an interesting nuanced portrayal of the mom i didn't she wasn't made out to be a villain she was made out to be a mother who really loved her children but who was very focused on, I think, believably, on their well-being of their souls in the next world rather than the well-being of her body in this world. Like, there was a sense in which she was hyper-focused on saving her soul as opposed to saving her body. And that kind of dichotomy, I felt actually true to the the time and the place. Mm. Um, but... But there wasn't another a voice that pointed to perhaps there's another way to to save the faith and not have a deception. I don't know. All right, so that's what we've been watching. Um, maybe you might want to go see that now, <laughs> and uh, even though it's been uh, a little bit spoiled, but you know. You, I think you explained why you, why you want, felt the need to explain the plot right in more depth. Um, I think if I'd gone into if I'd heard someone talking about it and gone into watching it and hadn't heard that, I might have been a little disappointed. Uh, anyway, that's on Netflix. Uh, I, I don't know where the wonder the Quiet Girl is. Uh, I uh, think it's just a regular the Quiet Girl. Lever. I'm pretty sure I saw it on Amazon Prime. Okay, although it might have been. Apple movies? I don't remember. Okay. Um, anyway. So, uh, let's talk about stuff we've been reading. Do you want to talk about your book, uh, Elidor? Yeah, Elidor. Uh, Elidor is a juvenile novel by Alan Garner, and I talked about another Alan Garner, Garner novel recently, the, um, the Stone Quartet. The Stone Quartet was 
sort of autobiographical historical fiction. And Elador is completely different genre. It is uh, fantasy. So it's set in, I think, Liverpool. And it's a story about three siblings, four siblings. This says Manchester. Manchester. That's right. It was Manchester. Yeah. Uh, Northern England. Right. <laughs> Industrial city. Um, it's after the war because they're still cleaning up bombed out neighborhoods. Um, so I would say the 50s, maybe. And it's kind of a kids go to a magical world story like Narnia. Narnia. And others. Yep. But. With a twist. And again, I'm not quite sure how spoilery I want to get, but I think that this twist is interesting enough that I kind of can't really talk about it without spoiling the novel a little bit. So be warned. If you if you do not want to be spoiled, skip ahead to Brother Maynard to about five minutes. Um, <laughs> so this is really, you know, there's a trope in like when you talk about like Joseph Campbell's heroic journey about like the refusal of the quest. And mm-hmm. Elidor is a novel in which basically the characters refuse the quest. The kids get sucked into a magical world while exploring um, a church, which is in the process of being torn down by a, by a construction crew, wrecking crew. Um, they get into a magical world. The magical world is a wasteland. It is blighted. Um, it is bleak and depressing. And they're separated from each other. We only really follow the journey of the youngest child, um, whose name is uh, Roland. Okay. Right? Child Roland to the Dark Tower came? Roland, yes. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a definite Child Roland to the Dark Tower came reference that's kind of... King Lear. Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare. That's kind of going through the, the novel. So he meets this guy who sends him on a quest... To find the magical object, he finds the magical object and he also happens to find his three siblings who have all gone ahead of him and found their own magical objects but been trapped. He releases them. Then they are sent back to England by this mysterious guy who wants them to keep these magical objects safe because they're the only hope of someday restoring his kingdom which otherwise would everything would be lost. But basically they've the battle has been lost. There's just sort of the we're going to save these objects. So they go back to England and it turns out that the objects have a sort of strange property. They they no longer look like the beautiful, wonderful, magical objects. They look like pieces of trash, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the kids bring them home. They have really weird properties like electromagnetic properties. They interfere with televisions and they create static electricity and all sorts of things. And the kids hide them. And then everybody except the youngest kid wants to completely pretend like Elidor didn't exist. They never went to that magic kingdom. And the stuff that they found was was not important. Right. It was trash. Like they hide it. They bury it in the garden and then try to forget about it. And the youngest kid is like... Why are you all forgetting it? So basically we have Roland is Lucy and everybody else is Susan who are no longer friends of Narnia, except they were in Elador for so long. It was like two chapters, maybe tops. Mm -hmm. 
it was like a bleep in the book. They did not have long magical adventures. They did not meet magical creatures. They did not like that's it that they're done in Elodor that, that's for the rest it. of the book. Okay, right, it's done. And so basically, the most of the book is the youngest experiencing these weird phenomena, weird, scary phenomena, and people trying to break into the house, shadows that appear out of nowhere that seem to be trying to break into his world from Elador to get to the magical objects, like these dark, sinister forces coming at him, and he's the only one who knows that they're there and nobody believes him. And then finally, at the end, a magical creature comes into our world and finally the kids acknowledge that, oh yeah, it really did happen. And the magical creature dies and they throw all the magical objects through this portal that opens up back into Elodor. And then now we're done with it. And that was it. Okay. <laughs> like it was a very anticlimactic, very anti. It's like a sudden ending. Yeah. And, and a very sort of, the opposite of Narnia. Like this was not a happy magical place. This was a a dark bleak place and they did not want the quest and they did not go on the quest and they did not want the objects and the objects were just a burden to them and they got rid of them as quick soon as they could. It was very unsatisfying. It's considered a classic. And yet it's kind of I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by it because it does seem to be some sort of a commentary on the tropes that mm -hmm. Narnia establishes, you know, it's kind of a reaction against like what happens when the magical kingdom isn't a great place. And what happens when you don't want to be swept up? What if happens if you're Bilbo Baggins and you don't, you don't want to go on the quest, you don't go on the quest and you don't go on it. Like you're sucked into it. And as soon as you can, you get out of it. And then you like, no, thank you. Slam the door in Gandalf's face. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's kind of bleak, but it's not, yeah. I mean, it's not overly dark. I, I don't want to make it out to this like, horrible, dark story that you shouldn't read because I did think that it was interesting. I liked Roland. I, I wanted more at the end of something. So the book was published in 1965. So it was clearly after all of Narnia had been out and was a success. Right. So do you think it was a commentary on, on Lewis and Narnia? It's hard to not read it as such. Although I've read an interview with Alan Garner where he talks about like, he doesn't really read modern fiction at all, partly because he doesn't want his fiction to be influenced by modern fiction. He basically says he reads mostly like, older classic literature like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and hmm. Shakespeare and things. It's not impossible, however, that he read Narnia. Or at least knew enough about it to have an opinion that he wanted to express. Right. Maybe he wanted to explore what he had heard about it, but not actually read. Or just turn it on its head. Like, you know, we've always heard these stories of the kids going on adventures. What if the kids... Didn't want, didn't go. What if they just refused to go on the adventure? Right. I think that's, I think that's an interesting premise. It is an interesting premise and it was an interesting book, but. It, it just wasn't executed as well as you'd like. And I'm not even sure it wasn't executed well. I think it is a premise which is going to be dissatisfactory because it's kind of an anti 
enchantment. I mean, Narnia, the, the charm of Narnia, what makes us love Narnia so much is that feeling of the re-enchantment of the world. And this Magical is, awe. Right. And this is a rejection of enchantment. It is, it is, a, it mm. is a bid for mundanity, except on the part of the youngest who I think really wants to hold on to that enchantment and then ends up being disappointed. Sort of a, almost a, com, a commentary on growing up and having to leave behind the things of childhood and just, and how terrible that can be. Right. I mean, I think that they're, I think on the level of a fable or a myth, it's saying something. I think I would, mm. I need to sit with it longer to really think about what it's saying. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear from listeners if they've read it or if they do read it, what they what they think about, like in you know, in what you're saying, and yeah. um, and respond to that because um, it does seem like it's a book that challenges you a little bit. It, it was a challenge. Yeah, I think that's a good word for it. It was a challenging book. Yeah, but I wasn't when I don't. I don't want to sound so negative and say I didn't like it. Yeah, you made it clear. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, well, if folks have read it, or if you if you do read it, it is a you know a children's or you know a children's fantasy novel. So. It's not long. Very short. Yeah. I like read it in a, in a day. Yeah. Maybe two days because I was doing other things. But yeah, you could you could sit down and read it in an afternoon, probably. So I read something very different. Uh, I read the first novel of Star Trek Strange New Worlds based on the TV show. So th- there's a long history of Star Trek novels based on the various uh, series going back to like, when I was a kid. There were novels. Um, and I haven't read lots of them lately. Um, Star Trek is different than Star Wars, where in Star Wars, everything is part of the continuity. If it's published by, you know, the official publisher, it's it counts. Well, the newer stuff, but not the older well, stuff. That, right? Well, that's what made that such a big deal was is when Disney bought... Star Wars from Lucas, they kind of shuffled a bunch of the published novels into, they called it Legends, and they sort of, okay, they kind of walled it off from canon, and then over time have been bringing elements of that back into canon, like Thrawn and other things like that. But they were supposed to have been canon by... Before, before, before they were canon. They were considered this is what happened. Uh, but Disney wanted the freedom to sort of reimagine what happened in order to make new movies and series and stuff like that, which is fine. I'm actually glad they did it, because if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have The Mandalorian and Grogu and what would a world without Grogu be like? Sad. Yes. So in contrast, Star Trek has never had a a um, literary canon that matches up. Recently, they've been trying to kind of get back to that with the new series. So books published under the aegis of the new series. So this is the first book in the Strange New Worlds, although it's technically not the first book book about the enterprise of the strange new worlds under captain pike there was they had there was a previous book by the same author of the one i'm about to talk about that was under the star trek discovery banner but the discovery wasn't in it at all which is a feature not a uh, bug in my, in my opinion um in any case so this one features captain pike the young spock um number one which is the his first officer una and uh, a young cadet Uhura and the other characters from the TV, the first season of the TV show, a strange, uh, strange new worlds. And so it, it's interesting. It's called um, the high country. They encounter this planet where 
Um, nothing electromagnetic works. No, so no technology works. Uh, and even stuff that's light technology, uh, that is um, older technology, like steam engines or whatever, are destroyed by natural forces. Sounds kind of like Stephen Sterling's The Change, uh, the change books. Right. It goes a little further than that, like, because in The Change Force, they could build, well, they couldn't build steam engines, so even that wouldn't work, yeah. So it's kind of like that, yeah. Um, And these alien pe- beings have basically taken, almost kidnapped, whole communities from different races and brought them to this planet from the past. So there was a there's a whole town, Dry River Junction, Colorado, or something like that, back in the 1850s that they lifted up the whole town and moved it to this planet. From Earth. From Earth. From other... other And from other planets as well. Okay. So, um, and from other places on Earth, too. There was a... Um, at one point, they encounter some... Uh, a, Brit- a British man of, uh, man of war from the eight, early 1800s, like a ship okay. of the line, which was kind of fun. And... So Pike and a few others end up crash landing on the planet, you know, in a shuttle. And so the rest of the book is about their efforts to escape and also uncover what's going on. It's interesting. It's a light critique on Luddism, this idea, this rejection of technology, like the people who intentionally reject technology as it only leads to evil. It only leads to destruction, in their case, destruction of the environment. Um, All technology is bad, which isn't surprising from a story set in a future sci-fi universe, right? I mean, to to reject people who are Luddites is not surprising in a sci-fi right. story. Um, it doesn't feature, like, some extreme environmentalists uh, who seek to preserve a world by holding back technology, but it's in this top-down, arbitrary sort of way that, in the end, leaves certain people in power, kind of coincidentally. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, by keeping people isolated and also unable to, you know, do much more than the basics of survival. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I liked it. The characters all I could, like, they all, all the characters felt like their TV counterparts, mm-hmm. which is always uh, a plus. You know, I could, I Pike, the way Pike talked sounds like Anson Mount in my head. You know what I mean? Like the way he, the way the character is written. Um, the author is John Jackson Miller, who we actually had on the Secrets of Star Wars uh, a while back last year, talking about his Star Wars novels that he does. Um, he's written some Star Wars stuff. So um, if you're at all interested, I would check those out because uh, it was he was he's a really uh, fascinating character. Um, but uh, I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was interesting world building. The um, the various you know techno babble stuff was plausible. The character, the the secondary characters were interesting, and the resolution felt true. Felt true to the the story. It didn't feel too Deus Ex Machina. Like oh, you know, it's we're oh, it's uh, forty eight minutes into this uh, the one hour show, and we need to wrap things up, so we need to have some solution. Like it didn't feel like that. Um, and because it's a novel, they could make it take place over a longer period of time. Right. And that was that was also pretty satisfying. So I, overall, I'm pretty favorable to it. If you like Star Trek novels, I mean, I tell you, I I'm a Star Trek novel reader from way back. I've read hundreds of them, uh, just not many in recent years. And this was a good one. So uh, I liked it. 
So let's uh, let's move on to talk about uh, a faith related topic. And you brought this to to me an article in the um, online magazine called Plow. Right. And the headline the, the the title is is reading fiction a waste of time or is it a valuable spiritual discipline we need more than we realize? Yeah. The 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 main title is reading fiction a waste of time feels a little bit clickbaity to me, but it was a really good article and yeah, I'm glad I read click, it. Got you to click on it. Yes. <laughs> it did. Um so the the author is uh I believe teaches at a seminary. Um and so she's writing sort of a defense of why teach literature to seminarians. Not, not a Catholic seminary, but, you know, a seminary nonetheless. Right. Um, so she talks about, I mean, maybe I'll just read a little small excerpt. I frequently find that those who shun fiction, many of whom believe it's a waste of time, seem more confined by their theological commitments, more bound to right answers and absolute formulas, more troubled by the paradoxes of faith. Lines seem more carefully and thickly drawn, ins and outs more obvious. They seem less able to discern those reasons which reason knoweth not, to translate Pascal. Could, could I rephrase it? Is, yes. So they tend to be more black and white, more literalist, more, um, I don't want to say fundamentals, but rigid. more rigid. Yes, that's the word. Right. Um, and then she says, this is the, the paragraph that I really loved. How can we possibly accept the apparent unfairness of God in a story such as Job's unless we can imagine in some incredible way that the vision of God, the encounter with the creator and sustainer of all that is, is worth all the suffering? Job loses all quite unfairly, and yet at the end of the day, he comes out ahead. He's seen God, and that is enough. Can we imagine a vision of God that makes everything we suffer all right, that that reading of Job just totally opens my eyes. Like I've never read Job in terms of like, can we imagine a vision of God that makes everything we suffer all right? How does that relate to the question that we start with that about reading fiction? So she talks about the importance of fiction being that it helps us to empathize and envision ourselves in other people's shoes. It helps us yes. to put ourselves into worlds, people, worldviews that are very different from ours. See through other eyes and live other right. lives. Yeah. She says, literature invites us to the exercise of the imagination that gives us that multifaceted experience of the one truth. We explore with our mind's eye the vast possibility of joy amid sorrow, of steadiness amidst betrayal, of deep goodness in the midst of tragedy. If we don't have literature, if all we're reading is nonfiction, we don't have those experiences of tragedy, of joy, of... Ooh, yes. I have a great yeah. example. What? So I've been reading a lot of uh, books about World War II. Um, and some of them include real experiences of people and, you know, descriptions of the things. But they're they're generally like this is, you know, the, the one I read about the war in North Africa recently I talked about on the show. Right now I'm reading a novel and I'll talk about it at length when I finish it um, called The Last Green Valley, which follows a German family, you know, a German Ukrainian family uh, in during World War Two as the the German 
uh, Black Sea Germans are called the the German uh, ethnic people who lived in Ukraine are evacuated by the Nazis as the Soviets are taking back Ukraine from the from the uh, the Germans, and it follows them on the way, and you get this visceral viewpoint. You get this story of their struggle, of what they encounter, of cr- the cruelty of war, of being at the at, you know being rescued by Nazis essentially, right. and the horrors of the of the of the commies of the Soviets and the and the the the, the, the plight of the Jews, and you get all of this through their eyes as you read this story in a way that you don't get by a dry recitation of the facts or even a, a not so dry recitation, but in a nonfiction book, you just, there would be no way to experience that. And in fact, Jeff Shara, the novelist does this with, he's done this with revolutionary war books and civil war books and now world war two books as well, where he tells you a completely factual story using historical figures, but as a narrative and a novel. Right. So that's one kind. But but I mean, I'm also thinking about like, you know, King Lear or. Yeah. You know, Henry V, like Shakespeare's great plays or Huck Finn or Moby Dick. Like these these books have something to teach us about the human experience. Literature is about what it means to be human, what it means to be human in all of its aspects, including are what it means to be human in relationship with God or in absence of God. So she starts off by by talking about being a child, reading a Flannery O'Connor story in which there's this very unsavory character who is making judgments on all of the other people in this waiting room. And it turns out like that she's sort of the person who needs redemption. Hmm. But you are drawn into her judgmentalism and her lack of empathy with other people. And so she's really talking about the lack of empathy which is so chronic today in our society, the cure for that lack of empathy is literature. It's fiction. It's reading stories. Not we, what, we, what kids need, what adults need, is not more information. It's not more facts. It's not more ideas. It's more experiences of immersing ourselves in the worldview of somebody who's not like us. Even if it's a completely fantastical, you know, fantasy or science fiction, it's just the exercise of seeing through another's eyes is itself valuable. So I I like here, just I'll read her last two paragraphs because this is really the kicker. Perhaps most importantly, by reading literature, we learn to know ourselves in new ways. Literature can help us to have mercy on ourselves and others can divest us of the ignorance that places ourselves at the center of the universe, can make possible new ways of understanding our own befuddled choices. Augustine recognized that we cannot know God without first knowing ourselves. In complex characters and broken situations and deeply human conundrums, we have space to explore facets of our souls that we hide from ourselves as much as we do from others. It's time to we craft some new spiritual practices for a disenchanted, buffered world that has lots of answers and no room for mystery. We need to add disciplines that can jolt us out of our 21st century spiritual banalities, practices that can counter our flattened world. I've started assigning fiction. Mm. 
I see this as a great challenge for people who don't like to read fiction, like, or don't see the value of fiction. There's something here, like when you look, if you look around in the world and you see people lacking in empathy, people being cruel, people being strident and tribal and villainizing people on the other sides of not only political divides, but religious divides, sectarian divides, even like within the church, you know, there's this group and that group and my group and the other group. Fiction allows us to overcome those divisions. Mm. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why StarQuest exists, you know, not just fiction, but even in movies and TV shows, which is what a lot right. of our stuff is, is it's about helping us to see these, these things and making these connections through seeing through other eyes, seeing the world the way other people see it. You know, when, when these, these filmmakers make the movie, they have a particular vision, just like, you know, whether it's the wonder or the quiet girl, you know, they have a particular vision that they're trying to impart. And by seeing their vision, you can get a sense of, oh, so that's how they see this. Right. I and and I think that movies and TV shows do have an element of this. Mm-hmm. But there's something, I think, in translating from a vis- to a visual medium. Yeah. That loses our ability to empathize. For example. I just want to bring this. This is what made me think of this article and want to talk about it. Yesterday, my sister was at a mall watching a movie with a friend and a friend's child and some teenagers faked a shooting. They they shot off. Some, they called. They, they called it. They, I think they were also running around screaming and like maybe shooting off like firecrackers or something, something that made booms. Anyway, okay. my sister was evacuated from the movie theater trying to protect a scared child, not knowing that this was fake and really believing that there was an active shooter in the mall. And when we were talking about the, you know, and an old man actually got injured in attempts to flee and had to be taken to the hospital. So this was not a harmless crime. And I, I was like, how could the teenagers who did this not understand the trauma that they were causing the people who were scared, who thought they were fleeing for their lives, who were terrified. And so that made me think about like the lack of empathy. Like they were not, the, the, the teenagers who pulled this prank were not able to imagine what it's like to be terrified, to be disabled and unable to leave the theater quickly like my sister is. To be a child, seeing all the adults around you terrified, to be the employees who are trying to shepherd out people heroically before taking care of themselves. But if you had read a novel about people who were terrified under gunfire, maybe you would have more empathy. Maybe you would be able to put yourselves in the victim's shoes and well, not think it was so funny. Especially Whereas, if you could, if the the novel conveyed the feeling of the people, like their thoughts and understandings and the right. consequences. Whereas I think that movies can distance ourselves we we can put ourselves in we're the passive viewers right because we're passive because they don't put us into the mind of another person we're still kind of outside the observer looking in some movies are better than others at pulling you into empathy but i think that there is something about reading that creates 
more empathy than well, movies also or TV shows. In visual media, the, everything is created by other people and you're just observing it. Whereas in literature, you create it in your mind. Like the words enter your mind and you create the images, you create the voices, you right. create the environment. Right. And, and when you read, you become a co-creator with the author. Yes. You... Your imagination is active. You imagine the people, you imagine the scenes, you imagine the feelings, and you enter in deeply and imaginatively into that world, into the experience of another human being. So when we read, we make connections with the author and with the people that they've created in a really deep way. And I think that that's so important. It's something that we are losing when we only watch TV or only read shallowly and we don't really read good fiction. Mm. I mean, I mean, I mean like good the fiction, Star Trek novel I read. No, actually, I, I would argue <laughs> that good fiction doesn't have to be, doesn't be literary. It doesn't have to be classic literature. Right. That good genre fiction, you know, whether it's mystery novels or romance novels or science fiction or fantasy or cowboys or whatever... Spy novels. Spy novels. Yeah. Genre fiction can really bring us into th those mm -hmm. empathetic relationships. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I share all the, the variety of no books that I read, you know, and like here, why we talk about all these different books of children's novels, of my pulpy spy novels or, you know, sci-fi novels and all this sort of stuff or nonfiction stuff just because it, it all has value. There is, there is, you know, I suppose there are, bad books out there that that don't that are fast food for the brain but in general i i, I think it more, more books than not have value in this sense of that if read properly in the proper mindset and the proper attitude can lend themselves to this sort of exercise so yeah all right. Well, uh, folks, you didn't get an episode last week, but you got a double episode this week. <laughs> We're, we've gone long. So I do need to uh, wrap things up there. But hopefully that's uh, for some food for thought. Let us know what you think. Uh, before we go, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including Robert C., Alan P., Ferdinand V., Jim K., and Kent L. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue raising the bets and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Follow Raising the Bets in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest YouTube channel where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Until next time, I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy, The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek.